0: Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. For those of you attending in person, for those watching online or on replay, we're glad that you are here as well. Thanks for tagging along. We are in part two uh, of a series on time. But before we get there, I want to do just a quick update on, I'm not sure how your weekend was, but my daughter, who's a freshman at Chihuahua High, had her first homecoming, guys. So uh, this is a picture of her. I know, and that's, you know, not to get too personal, but uh, she's the one in the middle in case you're, you're worried about it. Um, and, uh, I, uh, sent this to my wife or I sent this to our family texts and my mom, who is currently in Indonesia, halfway around the world, sends a text and said, man, she's beautiful. How old are you in this photo? Um, you know, and so that was, that was mean, uh, from across (laughs) the world. Uh, And uh, so I I bring it up because I just wanted to say, listen, if I come across as like tired or exhausted or whatever today, um, it's because I was at Chiawana High School under the bleachers, kind of keeping an eye on her all night long. So... (laughs) Uh, I'm like a little horse in the the throat, and uh, and I'm like bringing a teacher's note. Here's why I was late for class today. So anyways, Uh, also, I know that uh, I found out that if you uh, bring pictures of people uh, who are associated with you who are are better looking than you, then people give you like some benefit of the doubt. Like if they like him, then he must have something to say. So if you're a guest with us, my name is Brandon, the teaching pastor. This is my family. This is why you should listen to me. So um, anyways, uh, all right, there we go. Uh, we're part two of a series that we kicked off last week. If you missed last week and uh, what we talk about today interests you, uh, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks, or we've created an app that you can download it on demand and follow along. Listen to this one. I'll go back and, and start the series over. Um, it's a three-part series, uh, conversation on time and the way that we interact with time or inhabit time uh, in our life. We've been looking at a couple of passages each week. From a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, it's part of the genre of wisdom or wisdom literature. For them, uh, they the Old Testament features a people group, a nation of Israel, and their history of of uh, creation story, and then entering into you know entering into Egypt and coming down for, initially as friends, and then eventually as slaves. Their exodus away from that into a promised land, uh, their ability to maintain a relationship with Yahweh, the Jewish God, and then um, uh, and then kind of a fight in between and, and And back and forth disobedience and rejection, exile again. And anyways, it's all, all that's the big story. But inside of that history, law, prophets sort of genre is a couple of books on wisdom. One of them is Proverbs, which is more conventional wisdom. Here's how you should live a good life. Uh, and then their song of Solomon, which has to do with sort of love and relationships and uh, eros, sort of love. And then in this book, Ecclesiastes, the cynical take on life that is like the heart of every. If you're a millennial, you would love, love, love Ecclesiastes. It is it is uh, one eye towards uh, culture and the world, and like the the you know the despair or or the uselessness or cynical nature of, of all of it. And then also kind of one eye towards um, sort of a heavenly calling thing and how do you deal with a God who supposedly loves you with an existence that's seemingly mundane and, and pointless. And so that's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell, which is why it makes a great conversation starter for the time of your life. The author is, uh, presents himself as somebody who had everything that we would have wanted when we say, if only I had you know, money, influence, uh, uh, marriage, or successful, uh, success in life, anything like that. He's like, I've had it all. I've had everything that you think you've ever wanted. And listen, I still struggle with the purpose of existence, the purpose of, of why I'm here. I'm, I struggle with personal motivation and, and everything else. And so uh, this is coming from somebody who, who is, the, the presentation is I'm trying to tell you as a bigger brother to a younger sibling or a parent to a child or a mentor to a trainee or whatever, here's a good way of going about this thing called life. So with that context in mind, we're going to jump into chapter 7, verse 10 through 14. We're going to read the entire verse together. I'm going to go through sort of an interpretation of it because that's what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings. We present scripture. We interpret it in our community, in our context with application then at the very end, some sort of a takeaway or thought that goes along with it. So text, interpretation, and a departing thought. That's the layout. If you have to leave early, those are the three parts to this thing. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10 through 14, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other, therefore no one can discover anything about their future. All right, let's dive into this a little bit verse by verse and see, uh, there's an app that has the note section too, as we kind of go through this, this entire text, as well as anything else that's going to be on the screen will be on there as well. But verse 10 says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions question. Why are the old days better than these? That is a question that has been asked from generation to generation. Your grandparents asked it. Your parents have asked it. You sat around the dinner tables. They asked it. And then you found yourself asking it too. When Blink-182 announces a reunion tour and, and you say, man, those are the good old days. That was good music. You're old. I'm old. We're old. We do this all the time we think about why was it that that's when the Mariners were, that's when the Seahawks were good. Remember those old days? Remember this? Remember when kids respected their elders? When you start using those phrases, you find yourself in the category of old. And, it, and it's not just like, uh, it's not a unique thing to us. It's part of human nature. Um, and part of being human is to kind of, wax nostalgic for the past to wonder why things couldn't be uh, what they used to be. It's almost as if, uh, and and if this is true for 21st century, you know, modern day America, um, it's also then true for this first century, uh, uh, or not even first century, sorry, excuse me, back uh, even pre in BC, this Jewish um, community. Um, It's almost as if there's an essence or an understanding that we've been doing this since the beginning of time wondering why we couldn't go back or wishing we could go back to more simpler times. Almost as if it's like you could almost say Adam is in the garden going, remember when there was like no animals here? It was just quiet, peace and quiet. Or Eve is like, remember when there was no serpent to like induce us into eating fruit? It's, it's we've been doing this forever. Nostalgia has uh, a knack for leaving stuff though out of our memory, Last week we kind of talked about nostalgia a little bit in the dark side of nostalgia, and that we we forget sometimes half the stuff about it. When we when we wish we could go back to the past, we only think about the good times of the past. And we look at the you know pictures of people in the diner eating uh, you know uh, milkshakes in fifties type cars. We're like that's amazing, and you forget all the crazy crap that was going on in the fifties and sixties uh, that would have made it uh, not a great time to be alive for certain people groups or just part of it for in general, no internet, no phone, all that kind of stuff, right? It would be tough to be able to go back into those times. We leave things out of our memory. I used a quote last week, and I didn't give context for it. I'd like to do that this week. Um, uh, it's uh, from a book called The Worst Journey in the World, Antarctica. So it, it talks about Ernest Shackleton's trip to Antarctica, where he went down there to kind of do, be an explorer and search these things out. Uh, down there, their, their boat... Uh, basically dissolves and and breaks down on them. They're stuck there. They have to find a way to get back home. It's one of the most uh, engaging stories ever. And it's a really great, you know, there's a lot of rich history in that. But in that story, it talks about how oftentimes the story is glorified and negates the idea that this this most of this story was, was not great. Most of the things that would come out of it, yes, men recovered and survived this thing were able to get back home, but there was a lot of bad things that happened as a result of it. So much trouble of this world is caused by memories for we only remember half. This author is trying to recap the story and prefacing it with a really important note about life. Here's what we do in life. When we wax nostalgic and wish for the older times, the more simpler times, we only remember half of the things that go along with it. It shows up in Scripture, in the narrative of the Bible, oftentimes in this a syndrome that I'm going to call Better Back in Egypt Syndrome. The uh, the Jewish people they start they're called you know Abraham is is called into out, out of Ur and into like this new world and this new family I'm going to expand your family and make it great his descendants in, end up uh, finally with uh, Joseph leading them into Egypt they they find themselves in Egypt first as guests but then it says at the very beginning of Exodus the Pharaoh then forgot who Joseph was and most likely there was not that Pharaoh but the Pharaoh that comes beyond uh, you know behind that Pharaoh who then go there's a bunch of these people who don't look like us talk like us have different habits of us why not enslave some of them and have them do the work that we don't want to do and so they begin to do that they enslave them the workload becomes great now they're saying how can we do more with less how can we expect them to do more with less how do we how do we continue to become a great nation if we could produce bricks with less materials, that would help us as a nation, but that's going to be harder to do. So they double their workload, make it in- in- incredibly hard to be able to do this. These people are crying out. Eventually, as a nation, they find themselves crying out to a God of their ancestors who they believed had a reason and a purpose for them. We, we believe that there was a Yahweh Jewish God who had called us into something great to be a great nation, and yet we find ourselves Enslaved. The story of Moses comes up. He leads his people out of Egypt and on their way into the promised land. This is all Genesis, Exodus, sort of material in the Old Testament. They find themselves wandering and lacking food. It's a that Sinai peninsula, even today, is pretty dry. There's not a lot of resources, there's not a lot of things. And so, and they find themselves lost, which should be a couple month journey. They find themselves wandering the desert. There's no GPS, there's no direction, there's no map they wander for 40 years and scripture is clear that god is trying to train them what it means to be a a people again right i'm trying to train you what it means to be human he's trying to train them you're not a product of your of the things that you produce let me let me eliminate the slavery mindset from you and introduce you into something different and yet On that time, while they're journeying, they they run out of food, and they're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? God sends manna in the wilderness, so that's like a big thing, and they wake up in the morning, there's like bread just out on the ground for them, and they begin to eat it. And at first, they're like, this is fantastic. We didn't have to do anything for this, and it's right here. And then all of a sudden, after a while, they're eating it, and they're going, yeah, but man, Man, is getting old though, right? Like every day, every day. You've done this too, right? You get home and you're like, are we gonna do this again? Like this same thing? Uh, and, and at home, you just like, oh, I, I, and they begin to ask the question. They begin to complain. And in their complaints, they say, maybe we would have been better off back in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but I don't even remember it being that bad. And at least we had chicken or turkey or something to eat. At least we had meat to eat rather than just this bread day after day after day after day, forgetting all of the terrible things that were happening, by the way. I mean, that's the the key point. The better back in Egypt negates or chooses blissful ignorance about how bad it was and just is here wishing I was back home. It's kind of like whenever you've taken your kids on vacation. You ever done this? And like, we have to wake up early because we have to, to you know, go to the airport and we're, we're heading to the Disneyland, but the flight's early. So everybody's waking up. You wake them up and it's 4 in the morning. They're like, like, tired. They're just like, can we just go back to bed? And like, I'm taking you to Disneyland. Yeah, but we'd be so much better back in bed right now. You're like, You're, this is ridiculous, right? I should just leave you. That's what I should do. That's what. Um, this is, uh, this is them, this is the, the, the mentality that shows up, by the way, over and over and over again in scripture. Not only that, but when they enter into the promised land, then things aren't as great as they thought they'd be. You promised us a land flowing with milk and honey and now we've got to kind of like fight for the land and then there's droughts and famines still and there's people, we're always being, we're always in the middle of warfare. We find ourselves centrally located between Assyria in the north, Babylon in the east and Egypt in the south and it's not a great spot to be because you're in a, like a constant war zone. And maybe we were better back in Egypt. Maybe we were better back in Egypt. Maybe we were better back in Egypt. It's a question that happens over and over and over again. Wishing we were somewhere else, wishing for back to be able to go back to simpler times. The teacher's counsel here in this text uh, is subtle but somewhat radical. Don't ask the question, why were the former days better than these? To ask that question is to buy into an assumption inherent within that question. When you ask the question, when we ask the question, why couldn't we go back to simpler days? We are actually assuming that there are simpler days or there was simpler days. The the, the problem isn't with the answer. It's in the question itself. It's considered to be a loaded question. There is no good answer for that question because there are assumptions in that question that come across as bad. It's the same thing that I used to ask all of my friends in high school and think it was hilarious when I would say, hey, has your mom caught you kissing your sister yet? Exactly, there is no right answer to that. What if they say no? Oh, she hasn't caught you, but you are, right? What if I say yes? I would never say yes to that. The assumption within that is not great. It's a funny joke. And it, may, it, it makes people laugh, but it, it, that's the assumption buried in the very form of the question yourself. And the assumption is that you're kissing your sister, which the, the natural reaction should, and I was expecting a few more groans, I'll be honest with you. Most of you seem to be kind of okay with that. And I know we're not that far from Finley, but like we should have a general repulsion. Anyways, all right. The answer, the answer to the question is to, to, to answer the question itself is to buy into the assumption, it's precisely the assumption that is to be resisted. So when we ask that question, we again are assuming that it actually was better and to do all that kind of stuff. And it's not wise to ask questions that are predicated on foolish assumptions. The teacher is trying to, as a mentor, as somebody who has been alive longer than you and operates in wisdom, let me pass on this wisdom to you. Don't ask foolish questions that are predicated on bad assumptions. There is no win in that. This is not a chastisement of curiosity or inquiry. And this isn't a don't ask questions in life. The teacher is chastising nostalgia, the foolish assumption that the past was better than what it is. That's a foolish place to start. Then he goes on, verse 11, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Those who see the sun, who is he talking about? All of us, right? Anybody that doesn't live in Seattle, that's who's who's categorized as as those who see the sun. And he says, wisdom is like this inheritance passed on. It's an inheritance thing that is passed on. It's the uh, wisdom is the unhurried fruit of time served as a mortal being, serve sort of two mortal beings. It's when you go through education, uh, through grade school, elementary school, and high school, it is a process of imbuing uh, uh, this idea of experience. Here's what we know. Like, you don't have to explore this. This is inheritance of wisdom that has been passed on. You don't have to wonder why gravity works. Trust as it does. This is how math works. This is what's going to be expected of you when you get a paycheck and pay your taxes and do all the things. This is going to be a wisdom of generations passed down through, you know, from Eight thirty to three thirty on Monday through Friday, but not every fourth one. Any Anyways, I'm criticizing the school system. <laughs> Anyways, uh, every nostalgic impulse to turn back the clock is a foolish willingness to sacrifice everything that we've learned along the way. He's saying when you when if, if, when you want to go back, the assumption is not only that it's it's good to go back, but that you'd be better off for it, and that just isn't true. What you have become, what you have ingrained what you have picked up along the way, the bumps, the dents, the bruises, some of them have been things that have sharpened edges in your life. There are people who've seen blind spots for you. They have, they've approached you. They've said, hey, this is, you know this is what I see in you, and you're better off for it. To go back to what it was would be to leave all of that behind. That's a foolish thing to be able to do. The good old days are only tempting when you forget how foolish you were back then, too. Oh, to go back to high school. Back when you were an idiot? I mean, come on. You don't really want that, do you? You can't go back and keep the advantage that you've gained. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is offering. Verse 12, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves those who have it. He presents a metaphor to us that wisdom, the idea of having wisdom is kind of a quantitative cumulative thing is kind of like money. Um, and uh, in, in the same way that money is a shelter, right? We, we know that money is a shelter. This is why when we listened to Dave Ramsey and he says, you have to have an emergency fund of $1,000, why would I have to do that? Because $1,000 can get you out of a pretty tight jam on any given day. Like, there's a lot of decisions that you could make, bad decisions, and, and, and money serves as a shelter from some of that. Now, not entirely, I understand that, but it's a good thing. Like, that's why common sense wisdom says, you should have a little bit of a rainy day fund, however, whatever you want to name it, and it's, you, there's discretion on how much that is, right? But that makes sense. Wisdom kind of protects us from the dangers and the storms of life in the same way that money can, in a sense, protect you. But there's a difference, he says, between wisdom and money. Because wisdom when it comes to, to money itself the accumulation of stuff can can drive us to become a form of greed the the access uh, of, of, of money when you when you want more of it you're in danger of falling into that idea of greed for the love of money at the root of all evil and Jesus had more to say about money than he did to say about heaven and hell and anything else he's like he knows the the battle the uh, of allegiance of the heart when it comes to money so the more of it we get, the kind of the more dangerous that it becomes for us, the opposite of wisdom, you've never looked in the mirror and said, I'm just too wise. That's my problem. I just, I know too much, right? This is the the, the thing where he's saying, listen, they both provide a sense of shelter, but the advantage uh, of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves those who haven't. It doesn't deteriorate from the inside. It doesn't cause a conflict of allegiances. It doesn't destroy on the back end. There isn't like a dark side to wisdom like there is potentially with money. And then he goes on and says, look what God has done. Consider what God has done. Verse 13, who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Now, what's he talking about when he says what he has made crooked? He's talking about our lives in this. I think he's, the Jewish people had a general uh, idea that there is a God who exists who kind of orchestrates and facilitates is the architect of life itself, and that nothing happens outside of the bounds of, of his will. Uh, we do live with a sense of, of, of free will, and if you're a Christian, this is kind of how we bought into it too, right? We say, uh, I think that God facilitates all, is in charge of it all, orchestrates it all, doesn't allow a thing to happen outside of his knowledge, but also within that box is a bunch of free will options that he lets us kind of decide how to do it. He's got a a, uh, a game plan for our life, but not necessarily a blueprint for this. And, and, and our life has had kind of ups and downs, as, as yours probably has as well, uh, ebbs and flows, uh, pivots and and bends, zigs and zags of your life, and who could predict your life? I call this the unlikeliness of where we find ourselves. If I had asked uh 15-year-old you, where do you find, where do you think you'll be in 20 years or 40 years or however old you are? Do the math, minus it by 15. What would your life be like? Would it be anything? Would you have said at 15 anything like what it exists right now? I mean, the answer is most likely no. And that's fine. Like, it's not, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's called providence. That's called chance. That's called... Uh, like, I'm working through this thing. There have been some things that you've probably done better than you thought, and things that you've done worse than you thought. The wending paths aren't mistakes, and the crookedness of your life isn't a failure. And he's saying, even if you could go back and straighten it out, why would you even want to? So he's saying, Even when it comes to our personal makeup and our personal being, don't be nostalgic or wax nostalgic for that, wanting something back then that was similar. You're gonna lose all of the experience and the things that have shaped you in this way. Don't imagine that your times are a measure of God's presence or his absence. Don't imagine that the bends and the ups and the downs aren't symbols of when God was with me and when he wasn't with me, when I chose good and when I chose evil in that way one of the terms that they would use to describe God, one of the many names that they would have for God. We we just say God, and that's kind of a catch-all phrase for us. But for them, there would would be all kinds of Adonai God. There would be the omnipotent God. There would be uh, Yahweh or Jehovah God. For one of them, uh, for them is Emmanuel, one that comes to mind a lot during Christmas time because it means God with us. And our our basic instinct of what does it look like to, have, or a picture, a word picture of God with us is through the incarnation of Christ through the Christ child, baby Jesus, right? And so at Christmas time, we see Emmanuel or we sing songs about Emmanuel. But for them, that would have been a name and a term that they use all every month of the year because we find ourselves with the companionship of God who's with us in the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, the left turns and the right turns, the bends and the breaks in life, that God has been a consistent companion in all of that. Verse 14, which is why he can say in conclusion, when times are good, be happy when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything really about their future. His conclusion is simple. Times are good, bad, whatever, it doesn't matter. God has made one as well as the other. He's, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He is with us in all of those different things. Therefore, no one, therefore, any sort of, I wanna go back in time and change this or go back and do this, it's just a waste, a waste of mental effort and not worth it anyways. Uh, there's a, a book that I'm working through as a part of this series, and the quote comes from that. Wisdom is recognizing our morality, our shared vulnerability, and our solidari- solidarity in this sea of Kronos. Kronos is the uh, Greek word for time in a linear structure, right? Um, we, when you when we went through history class, there was this, and there was a timeline. It leads up to this, and then there's a future beyond this. It's the forward-moving sense of time, Kronos, that you are not what you were. You're not what you will be. You're on your way towards that. We find ourselves somewhere in that sort of timeline. Wisdom is recognizing our morality and our shared vulnerability and our solidarity, that we all experience this sort of thing together. There's another word uh, that, that is scripture uses uh, to, uh, in regards to time, that time exists on two different planes, one of a forward-moving sense of time as we commonly understand it in life, uh, Chronos, and then another term called kairos, which is the idea that time operates on kind of a different level and God's understanding of time, that when we speak of God existing outside of time or having a perspective of eternity as a whole, that he sees things a little bit differently. It's kind of hard for our Kronos engagement mind to kind of understand this, but the idea that God exists outside of time, that he has eternity in mind as he's working through this and his control of in control of all. It's a really hard concept to understand. And so the church in its tradition has tried to kind of ex- explain this through various means. Um, up until the printing press, like for most of us, our knowledge comes from reading or, you know, the paper or the news articles or something, or watching something on TV, which is essentially something that's written that's been being read to us. So our medium of knowledge comes through words and interpretation of that. And, uh, and that's, that's been true for several hundred years. But before that, Uh, In the Dark Ages, and even even earlier than that, the means of communicating truths was a little bit more difficult. Uh, Books were less ubiquitous because books were expensive to kind of produce, um, because there were a lot less people who knew how to write, and uh, less people who knew how to read. And so even if you had a book, you didn't have the education to be able to uh, read that book. Uh, And so it wasn't a matter of, let's get more literature out in people's hands. It was, what are means of expressing spiritual truths that we can get to people and illustrate uh, truths about Life and reality with them, and so um, a lot of paintings were used, or stained glass windows. The reason stained glass windows in churches were so popular for so long is that was a way of illustrating truths that the people would gather together on Sunday. They would see the story and the narrative of creation played out before them. They would sing these songs and they would see and they would interpretate these things in paintings that were a big deal. Less so now for us, but to ignore it completely would be to ignore a big arm of Christian history. And so uh, I want to show you a painting today, not because I'm like super into paintings. I don't even own uh, uh, really any of them. But, um, but there's a big truth that's being illustrated here that shows up in the uh, 14th century, Uh, about a mayor from a small Spanish town. Uh, The town was called Orgaz, and the count who died there was loved by his people. He was a very good uh, political figure, well-loved by both, you know, everybody in the town. Wealthy, but was an extreme philanthropist with his money. Left a big chunk of his money uh, towards uh, building a church in that town to be, you know, here's a a place. I want. I want my resources in life to be used as a place to be able to further the communication of a God that I love and in a world and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, in that uh, was not only uh, the building was built as a result of it, but a painting was commissioned. And this is the painting. It's called the Burial of the Count of Orgaz. This is the guy uh, dead right down here. And this is there's a two parts to this story. Your eye is drawn to two different things. One is like this domed sort of structure up here, which represents heaven and 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 the earth and Or, sorry, heaven and earth, right? Up in here, you've got Mary Magdalene. This is a Catholic sort of thing, so she's praying over the deceased. You've got Jesus in all of his glory there. You've got Peter with the keys to the kingdom over here. And then below are all of the people uh, that were in this lifetime who he loved. And then Ironically pictured uh, in these two yellow things, drawn to it by the, the differentiation of color, uh, on the left is a young St. Stephen. Stephen is the famous martyr in the book of Acts, martyred for his faith, the first one. Peter. Uh, sorry, Paul holds the coats of all the people who are stoning him for, for his belief systems, of who Jesus was. And on the right, uh, in the fourth, the fourth century bishop, uh, St. Augustine uh, of Hippo, who was like a big famous you know, uh, author and, and uh, originator, one of the early church fathers in that way. So in the story, two different scenes, two different things going on, uh, and these people are obviously passed away. This is uh, 10 centuries later, um, and yet they are not in the heavenly realm. They are in the earthly realm. What is being communicated in this photo or in this, this painting that is being drawn to this? It's, it's, and and um, not only, like, these people exist on a plane with us, but, like, he is from a Kronos thing, older than St. Augustine. He was born in the first century, he's in the fourth century, yet he's presented as younger and he's presented as older. What's the story being told here? Was this painter just really bad at telling time? He's just awful at it? Do you have any pictures from your grandma? And on the back, they write, that, you know, you go through these photo albums and they're like, this was Susie when she was 25 years old. And you're like, grandma, I was 12 here. What are you talking about? You're just bad at time, right? Uh, is that what's happening? They're just bad at time or is there a deeper truth that's being told here? And the truth for them is that uh, that they're trying to communicate. They would gather these Spanish people who can't read or write and say, look at this photo. What do you see? What do you recognize? That this person who we respected in his death was, 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 um, was part of a, a bigger community of saints that we are, we are alongside of us as we go through life and experience death, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses a great cloud of people who have gone before us, that the church is a capital C church that exists outside of what we see here, but as is a, is a, a history of the saints, that we have people like Stephen and, and, and like St. Augustine coming and supporting us through this passage of death and into new life and new heavens and, and new earth sort of thing. This is their way of communicating this. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11 says, uh, goes through this list of heroes of the faith. Abraham, hero of the faith, heard the voice of God, left everything that he knew, wandered in the wilderness, was promised all of these things. Uh, Isaac, J- Jacob, uh, Joseph, all of these heroes, the Moses, by faith, they left. By faith, he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. By faith, they left the thing. He's, they're walking through the entire history of the Old Testament. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, "Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. What better way to illustrate, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses than to put a painting together and say, look, at, look who's involved in all of this. Who, look who's still with us. Look who lives on with us that life doesn't always operate on the chronos level of existence, but something deeper is in place here. The reason we can run the race marked out for us in the context that we find ourselves in chronologically is because we are surrounded by all of that. We don't go through this individually and alone. This is a big, we are surrounded by all of these things. We have a life, we have a timeline of existence beyond this. Now, how does this play out for us? All right, every year, Uh, This this is why, by the way, the the liturgical calendar for the church was created, so that we participate in these ups and downs and go through things of life. And we don't do it as a church, uh, uh, East like the expression, we don't do um, uh, common time or anything like that. But every every, uh, once a year, right around Christmas time, we participate in a thing called Advent. I like to be able to have the creativity the rest of the year to be like, I want to talk about work, I want to talk about time, I want to talk about death, I want to talk about whatever. When it comes to Christmas time, if you've been a part of Eastlake for the last 11 years, um, we say, all right, we're going to participate in Advent. It is a time in church history that has been set aside where we anticipate the arrival of Christ. Now, chronologically, that's already happened, Right? We, we can look back and be like, we are living on this side of the incarnation of Christ, the death and burial, the resurrection of Christ. But from a kairos sort of standpoint of time, we place ourselves in that waiting and in that anticipation. We try and picture what it would have been like to bend those shepherds out in the fields, tending their sheep, seeing this, these angels come forth and present us Hosanna like today in the town. We present ourselves, we, we, we go, we wanna be like that Magi looking into the sky, looking into the wisdom of the world for some sort of a savior, some sort of a North Star, some sort of a here he is, he's finally arrived. Arrival simply means Advent. We'll get to that in a few months when we get there, but the, we, we're placing ourselves in that. We're, we're trying to engage in Kairos thing. We're on this side of the narrative of Christmas, but we still celebrate it. Why? Because we want to feel what it would have felt like to be waiting, anticipating, and and looking forward to a Messiah, a Savior who arrives for us. In Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, we see this played out in the Old Testament as well. Um, The Old Testament, uh, the first five books are known as the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first four are kind of like timeline here's here's where they started here's where they went here's you know all this kind of here's the different laws and whatever and then Deuteronomy sort of stands alone uh, it's presented as Moses has one last speech before they enter into Jerusalem they've exi- they've, they've come out of the exile of Egypt they've spent 40 years wandering in the desert and then right before they go in hey one last reminder here's where we came from here's what we believe here's what we know here's where we're at And in the beginning part of his speech to the people, he says this, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Don't forget, everybody, the Lord God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Now, the truth is that God did make a covenant with a people group at Horeb. But at least a generation prior, meaning other people had died off and new people had been born, so there would have been people in that scenario who have been like, he didn't make covenant with me. It was my ancestors, it was my grandparents or whoever that he made with, not, not with me. And, 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 but Moses is like, that's not the point. The point is we are that people group. We are, over and over again, we see throughout Deuteronomy, this idea of we are the ones who were sent to exile. We are the ones who rejected God over and over again. We are the ones who are subject to blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Blessings when we choose to do do right and cursings when when we choose to do wrong. We are that. We see that over and over again, which leads us to then realize we are living a chrono sort of existence, right? We are getting older. We, are, we would do well, as we said in our death series a few, a few months ago, uh, to, do, to remember our mortality, that life is a gift and that we are like slowly progressing towards dying away. May we live with a sense of our, 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 our futility and, and, and use that as a leverage to be able to live a life as a gift. But we also exist on a kairos sort of way. We are to interpret and read scripture and find ourselves in this story to, to see where are we and, and how does this kind of play out for us? There are two questions as a result of this. This is our takeaway. This is what I wanna close with. What are the conditions for being a witness to this intersection of eternity and history? And in other words, what does it mean for us to live out as a witness to all of this, to the truth of a God who created of people who rejected, and a God who never gave up, who gave His Son as a message of hope and redemption and and future glory. What does it mean to live in that way? We just sang a song, the third song that you guys just sang. I find myself a sinner. You're a Savior. We were meant for each other. Like this is great. You're, this is how this whole thing works out. You're gonna. This is. We find ourselves in this. How do we bear witness to that in the? in your workplace, in your life, with your kids, with your family members, in your uh, relationship with your spouse or, or significant other or whatever, how do I bear witness to the truth of the revelation of God through Jesus in this scenario? And then question number two is this, simply, when are we? When are we? Not where are we, but when are we? Not chronologically, I know we're in 2022. I'm not like, Brett. this is like multiple, you know, quantum physics sort of thing, all that kind of stuff, whatever. I'm saying, when are we in terms of where do we find ourselves in this? Are you like David right now? When you read through and you read him in his Psalms, writing these songs saying, God, why do I feel like you have abandoned me? Why do I feel like I'm trying to do good and I keep coming up against things and I'm watching people who are worse than me? I know they are, like from any standpoint of the word who are succeeding in life. Why is that? Why do the people who threaten my life live a blessed life? Why, why is that happening? Maybe maybe if Kairos wise, I see myself as Job. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up and I'm, I'm bumping up against like terrible things happening in my life. And I'm like, am I doing something wrong here? And all of my friends are like, you must be bad. There's something you're doing. What is it? You're, you're, you're worse than you think that you are, right? They're challenging Job going, there's something in your life that you're not even aware of. This is how bad you are. You suck and you don't even know you suck. Am I, am I Job right there questioning what is happening? Am I Solomon with all of my riches and all this stuff? Who, By the way, started out really well, did a lot of good things early on was blessed by God, was given the gift, more wisdom. I mean, we talked, we joked about having too much wisdom. He was known for the person who had more wisdom than anybody else. And then later in life, through the comforts and spoils of having everything, begins to kind of the story of his legacy kind of gets tarnished at the end, right? His heart becomes divided between his multiple wives and his this and that and the other thing, his, his heart becomes pushed away because of decisions that he made, his allegiances towards allowing all of these marriages to influence um, alliances nationally, uh, the gods that they worship, all kinds of different things. He kind of lost it towards the end. Is that where I'm at? When am I? As I read through scripture, if I'm not asking that question, if I'm simply reading it as history, that's one thing, that's to read it as chronos, that's fine. You can do that. But it's also an invitation as we see to read it as kind of a Kairos sort of perspective. Am I like Peter? I've been given this gift of living on this side of the incarnation. I know who Jesus is, what he said and what he spoke. Um, and yet I kept finding myself failing him I know what he's taught me to do. And in the garden, Peter is in, you know, Jesus is there, he's going, I sense danger tonight. Would you guys mind just staying up and making sure I feel insecure and I feel unsafe? Stay awake and kind of, you know, pray with me or protect or all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. I'm on it, I'm on it. Five minutes later, he's sleeping. I know what you wanted me to do, but here's what I find myself doing. That's essentially what Paul is trying to say. I I know the things I'm supposed to do, And I know I'm supposed to want to do them, but not only do I not do them, I find myself not wanting to do them. What is that with me? What is wrong with me? Do we see ourselves in that? That is the invitation for us as well, as we wrestle with this thing called existence and the experience of time. We find ourselves chronologically on this side of things, and then we have to figure out what does it mean to be a witness to be witness to the truth of scripture in our context? That's true. And then when are we? When are you? Where is your life shaping up in this way? And what does it mean? What does it look like to be a follower of the way of Jesus and the way that he taught about who God is and what he wants from us in our context? That is the question. One that deserves a little bit more conversation, which is why you should come back next week for part three in the conclusion of the time of your life. Let's pray though. Father, our prayer is that this week you would help us to begin to navigate all of this and to look at this, to realize chronologically you've created us on this timeline that we don't go back. We we shouldn't wish for nostalgia. We shouldn't wish to go back to things. You've been a part of this process the entire time. You're shaping us. You're growing us. And what you are interested in is what do we do from here? So we know that to be true. One of the tools that you've given us is the invitation to participate in the kairos of the story of creation, fall, redemption, and future hope and glory. May we find ourselves in that. May we wrestle with that. May as we dive through scripture and piece ourselves in the story, see ourselves in that way and constantly come back to a God who refuses to let his people go, who is on a path towards redemption and goes to the utmost extreme length, that the fullness of time you sent your son for us. May that ring true in our existence as well that you never give up on us, and you love us deeply. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. The encourage you to do something about it. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, EastLakeTriCities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.